Get Back to Basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi, and a very good afternoon to you. Wonderful to be in your company this afternoon. It is a beautiful Wednesday here in the Highfield, and today, of course, is the 16th day of ER, which means that in a couple of days' time, it will be the 18th day of ER, which also means that that date will be Lag Ba'omer. We'll chat a little bit today about Lag Ba'omer, what it means, what it should mean to us, what we've got to do about it. And um, in addition to that, then, as we have been doing over the last few weeks, we will together learn a piece from a Mishnah in Pirkei Avot, in Ethics of Our Fathers, this coming week, this coming Shabbos. We're up to the study of the fourth chapter. So we'll take a look at something, something unique, something special, and perhaps something related to Lagba Omer in chapter number four of Pirkei Avot, of the Ethics of Our Fathers. But let's begin with talking about the upcoming festival, and it is a festival, it is a wonderful date that is going to occur this coming Thursday night and Friday. Now the first thing that you may have noticed or you may be aware of is the fact that Thursday night and Friday um, there may be events planned, uh, musical events, there may be weddings, simchas taking place. And why that is unique, why that is unusual, not just because we've been in a year of a pandemic, but it's unusual because we have been in a period of semi-mourning. There is a period of semi-mourning that uh, pervades this entire time between Pesach and Shavuot. We call it the Sphira period, although actually the Sphira period has nothing to do with mourning, but there is an overlay of a semblance of mourning that takes place during this time. And on Lagba Omer, that morning is put on pause. That morning ceases. It ceases for the uh, duration of the day of Lagba Omer. So let's explore a little bit what Lagba Omer is actually all about and why and how it comes about that this should be this day, kind of an island in time in this period of morning, what that is all about and how we are supposed to look at it, and perhaps within the very reasons for the state, we'll be able to learn out some of the very important messages of Lagba Omer as we go along. So let's begin by saying this. The Sphira period, the counting of the Omer, is a Torah obligation. If we read about it in the Torah, in fact, it's even mentioned in this coming week's Parsha and Parshat Emor. We're going to read on Shabbos. <coughs> One of the things that we mention in the Parsha is this obligation to count the days between Pesach and Shavuot. The 49 days, the seven weeks, counting up to the 50th day, which marks the day on which the Torah was given. And of course, it mirrors the history from the time of Exodus from Egypt to the time that we stood at Mount Sinai and received the Torah. That was exactly seven weeks. That was those 49 days. And we count to those days. But we realize that it's a lot more to it than that because it actually doesn't say just count those days in memory or just count those days in build-up, or make it that it's something that we're really, really looking forward to Shavuot. Of course, all of those are understood and are side benefits. But we understand that the counting of the Omer is a spiritual exercise. 
an exercise in our spiritual growth, an exercise in our self-improvement, an exercise in our ability to take our own souls, put them under a microscope, analyze, and take a look and think about how on a particular day of these 49 days we work on and we focus on a particular uh, part of that soul, a particular part of our neshama, something that we call a midah, or we may call it a sphira, to take a look at that, to work on it, and to try thereby to have our neshamas, to have our souls in a perfect, pristine, shiny, sapphire, polished, and that's the word sphira, by the way, in parentheses, a sapphire, polished, beautiful soul that we can present ourselves with and we can present the Almighty with come Shavuot in a few weeks' time. Now, as I told you, there was an overlay. The overlay of mourning is that there was a great sage by the name of Rabbi Akiva lived just at the time towards the end of the Second Temple and at the time of the destruction of the Second Temple. So we're going back a couple of thousand years. Two thousand years ago, Rabbi Akiva, this great sage, who began learning Torah only when he was 40 years old, um, but became one of the greats of all time, and amassing, as he did, thousands upon thousands of students of followers. Now, a terrible plague, and we all know what plagues are, a terrible plague, a terrible pandemic befell the students of Rabbi Akiva, and it happened at this time. Between Pesach and Shavuot, it was in the time of the Sfira, of the Sfira Ta'omer, that no less than 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva perished. Their dying, their passing during this time, was not just the passing of anybody. It was kind of dafka, honed in on the students of Rabbi Akiva. All of them, a great Talmidei Chachamim, great Sages in their own rights, great students, wonderful people, people doing as Rabbi Akiva uh, requested of them and bequeathed to them exactly what he believed to be what Torah was all about. They were kind. They were great. They were generous. They were honest. They were um, perfect citizens. And the question that was asked by our sages was why should it have been that they died and why? In such great numbers, 24,000 students, or as it said, 12,000 pairs. Remember, Talmidim in yeshivas and the students of Rabbi Akiva would learn Torah face-to-face in the Chavrusa together with their Chaverim. And they conclude, our sages tell us, that Enam Nosnu They failed to show the requisite respect to each other. They did not properly respect each other, and it seems astounding. The students of Rabbi Akiva didn't respect each other. In what way could they not have respected each other? And we kind of reached the conclusion that they were so involved in their Torah learning, they were so involved in their opinions on Torah, that they forgot to show the requisite respect to each other in a way whereby they viewed each other's opinions as being equally important to their own that they kept their own opinion so hard and fast that they could not believe that their chaverim, that their friends, that the person sitting across from them from the table could not see things exactly in the same way as they did. 
And therefore, they didn't show enough respect to each other. And our sages conclude that this is why this terrible plague befell them. But everybody agrees that on Lagba Omer, on the 18th day of Iyar, on the 33rd day of the Omer, the students of Rabbi Akiva stopped dying. Now there is a difference of opinion as to whether they stopped and didn't start again or they, that it stopped and it was just this island of no death to the students of Rabbi Akiva on the 33rd day of the Omer. But either way, the day itself, day number 33 of the Omer, which is Thursday night and Friday of this week, the students of Rabbi Akiva did not die. And we therefore have this celebration of kind of getting out of mourning, of moving away from negativity and from sadness and moving into a much, much better, more appropriate space, the space that we really want to acquire and have at our beck and call at all times. And that is the space of wonderful, good, positive energy and simcha, joy and happiness. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi and welcome back. Yes, it's Rabbi Michael Katz and we're on Judaism 101.9. So, Lagba Omer, the day on which death in the history of our people with the students of Rabbi Akiva actually ceased. Nobody died on that particular day. And therefore, a cause for great celebration, kind of getting out of the morning space and going into a much better space of positive energy, of simcha, of joy and of happiness. And therefore, all the <coughs> things that we think about or that we uh, use to commemorate this period of mourning actually fall away for the duration of that 24-hour period or 25-hour period of Lagba Omer. Music is permitted, live music even. Weddings are permitted and take place. There are many who uh, permit haircuts. Not everybody does um, during this time, uh, during the day of Lagba Omer. But you get the drift. It is a day of simcha in this otherwise bleak period of a few weeks of semi-morning. There is something else that happens at this time and happened at this time. And that is the passing of the great sage, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, nicknamed or the acrostic kind of name to given to him is Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, Rashbi, who lived probably the second century of the common era and uh, therefore um, just after the destruction of the Second Temple, Roman persecution times, difficulties with the Romans, and that led to an incredible event or series of events in his great life. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, by the way, is quoted all over the Talmud, a great Talmudic scholar of note and a great sage who is quoted in the Mishnahs of uh, the Talmud itself. Now, this great Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai <clears throat> was once overheard making certain comments um, against the Roman uh, rulership that uh, was terrible and heinous and persecuting and uh, uh, horrible and difficult for the Jewish people. Remember, they destroyed our temple. Remember, they occupied Jerusalem. Remember, they uh, were cruel and uh, horrific and uh, very, very uh, persecuting of the Jewish um, people in Israel at the time, Rabbi 
Shimon Bar Yochai made certain comments for which the Romans actually placed a death penalty on his head. He escaped and he went to a place called Miron. Miron is um, just outside Svat, on the side of a mountain um, in Miron. Um, there is a uh, grave there that marks uh, the uh, grave site of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And it was there that he spent time together with his son. And um, they had to go into hiding. And they spent time in a cave. And what happened in that cave, or during the time that they spent in that cave, was there was a carob tree that was outside, and there was a spring of water that developed right outside there, so they had water and food. Could you imagine caribs and water was what they lived on, and now get this, for 12 years. Their sentence to the cave was for 12 years, and to make matters worse, when those 12 years were actually up and they were told that it was safe to come out of the cave and they emerged from the cave, it was pretty clear that uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son um, had kind of lost touch with the world. They uh, were angry at the fact that everybody else was carrying on and just living their lives and farming and doing whatever people do, that um, God instructed them. They were sent back to the cave and they went back into the cave for another year. So they spent 13 years inside this cave, living on caribs and water. Um, their clothing was actually the dust of the earth. They dug holes in which they um, sat during the day in order to cover themselves. And they sat and they discussed and they learned Torah. And it was really there that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, never mind the fact that he was this great Talmudic and sage, which I don't mean in any disrespectful way, never mind, but over and above the fact that he was this great Talmudic sage, he became the very um, um, essence of a, the majority of what we know about Kabbalah, about mysticism, about all the mystical things and interpretations of the Torah, because he became then the author of the famed work, the Zohar, which is um, essential to an understanding of Torah per se, but it gives us the very depths and the very um, essence of the soul of Torah. This was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Now, he and his son spent these 13 years in that confinement, inside that cave, in that isolation, without the ability to have any contact with anybody and anything in the outside world. And there, they spent their time delving into the depths of Torah in the most spiritual of fashions and emerging as they did after the 13 years when this decree against Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai by the Romans was actually abolished and was now no longer a threat on him. He was able to come out teaching the whole world some very, very different takes on everything to do with Torah, Judaism, Kabbalah and so on. Now, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai happened to be one of the only surviving students of Rabbi Akiva. So, yes, there is a link. There's a great link here. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai was one of Rabbi Akiva's famed students. In fact, we speak about five of them, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai being one of them, one of the famed survivors of the terrible decree against the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva.
Here Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai emerges from all of this. Now what is the link then to Lag Ba'omer? Well, Lag Ba'omer, we could say, number one, is a day on which nobody died. But here we have this strange, strange kind of anomaly. And that is that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, all these years later, passed away on Lag Ba'omer. So Thursday night and Friday is the Yorzeit of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. But herein lies the very essence of what perhaps we need to think about when it comes to Lagba Omer. Because Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai explained to his own followers, to his own students, to his own Talmudim, he told them that at the time of my passing, I do not want you to mourn. I want you to celebrate. At the time of my Yorzeit, the anniversary of the date of my passing on the Jewish calendar, I want you to remember that I have a, an elevation of the soul that takes place at that time, that we are saluting and we're looking at at the time of a person's passing, and especially a great sage, and especially when someone has accomplished whatever they needed to accomplish from a spiritual point of view in this world, they have and they will experience the elevation of their soul. It is a birthday into the next world. And at this time of the birthday into the next world and the anniversary thereof, which occurs every year, and we call it the Yorzeit, let's rather think about the Hilula. Let's rather think about the elevation of that individual, the elevation of that soul, and the fact that on that day, in the heavens, they are celebrating the arrival of that soul on that particular day and its elevation from level to level as it ascends ever higher in the heavenly realms. And so he said to his Talmudim, to his students, we need to have a different kind of a look when we're looking only at the physical, when we're looking only at the physical body. Yes, of course, from a physical point of view, it is sad, it's ugly, it's not pleasant, it's um, unhappy. And we feel at a terrible loss when somebody of that caliber passes on into the next world. But when we look at it from a spiritual point of view, on a soul level, nothing has changed in effect to the neshama except the fact that it has been elevated. It has remarkably accomplished everything that it needed to accomplish down here on earth. It has done everything that it needed to do for uh, mankind and for God and for the entire universe. And now it has passed on to this next level. That's a cause for celebration. That's a cause for great, great, outstanding upliftment and celebration in honor of this particular neshama. And this was what Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai taught. So now, if we think about Lagba Omer, on the level of Rabbi Akiva, if we think about on the level of the students of Rabbi Akiva not dying, so of course we have this pause. We have the pause in the period of mourning, and now we change to a period when nobody died. But perhaps on a higher level, to take a look at everything on the level of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, to think about the fact that this is not just a pause in people not dying, but rather to have a complete overhaul in the way that we look at um, the concepts of death, of dying, of uh, all of those really, really difficult things for us to be able to bear, and to think about the fact that we as Jews, as Torah observant Jews, as people who are trying our, our utmost to fulfill all of Hashem's mitzvahs, that we are reaching and that we have reached a level whereby we understand that the Neshama continues, that the soul is 
as pristine, if not even more pristine, as beautiful, as wonderful, and even greater as it goes on its higher journey when it leaves this world, having accomplished everything that it needed to accomplish down here on earth. This is the elevated kind of state of mind and soul that we are meant to reach come Lag Omer, the 33rd day of the Omer. So Lag Omer is celebrated throughout um, history as being this day on which um, celebrations took place, weddings took place. Now that in itself is something very, very positive and beautiful. The concept of a wedding is the idea of building Jewish homes based on the principles of Torah and of mitzvahs and so on. That idea is building things for perpetuity, building things for the future. The building of a home, the marriage of a couple, is not just an excuse for a party. That's not what it's all about. It's not just a celebration, but it's a celebration of neshamas, of, of, of souls on high. And therefore, the concept really of Lagba Omer is to readjust our sights to take us away from thinking of things just on a physical level, to elevate it and think on a spiritual level and a completely spiritual level, thinking about how the soul continues, thinking about the power of that soul, thinking about how important it is to make sure that our souls have the proper exercise and are properly fed on the Torah and the mitzvot that they have to um, adhere to and that they have to keep. And to think about the fact that clearly Lagba Omer represents a day of love because the students of Rabbi Akiva perhaps didn't show each, each other enough honor or love or respect. And here it's a day in which none of that happens. It's a day of love. But it's not only a day of love down on this earth, in this kind of an earthy realm, but a day of love of Nishamas, of recognizing the depth of each and every soul, the importance of each and every soul, the importance of each and every individual, how each and every individual is of paramount importance to us. And the students of Rabbi Akiva would go out into the fields and they would um, pretend perhaps to the Romans that they were going out with bows and arrows. This is a theory of why it is that the bow and arrow became a symbol of Lagba Omer, that they were going out pretending to be going hunting, but when in fact they were going out to study, they were going out to learn Torah. But the concept of the bow and arrow is, as described many a time, is the idea that when one wants to reach with that arrow and just... Think about the fact that the arrow has often been taken as a symbol of love, that when one wants to send love, that the way that you can send it further is the further you draw it back towards your heart. When you're holding a bow and arrow and you pull the string of the arrow, the bow is taut and it's pulled back towards the heart. The further it goes, the deeper it goes towards the heart, the further that arrow can reach and the more that it can reach to those perhaps who are far away, those who perhaps we think are lost, those who perhaps have drifted out of our orb to bring them closer and to send them and to share that love. This is one of the major symbols of Lagba Omer. So let's move into that realm, into that space, this Lagba Omer, of recognizing that this is not just a time for an excuse for a party. Let's uh, say l'chaim and uh, have a good time and sit around a bonfire. And by the way, the bonfire is also was the idea of the fire of Torah, the fieriness of mystical um, uh, things to do with the Torah, the fire of the soul that needs to be ignited and that needs to be brought to the fore. This 
is what Lagba Omer is really all about. Let's commemorate it properly. Let's celebrate it properly. And let's take it to a completely different level as we do so, thinking about the importance of this great and wonderful Chag, this wonderful festival, Thursday night and Friday. Now, as we mentioned each week, we have been doing now since we started learning Pirkei Avot, the ethics of our fathers, and each week dealing with a part of a Mishnah from the particular chapter that we're going to be reading on that on this coming Shabbat. And on this Shabbat, we're going to look at chapter number four. Now, I would like to take a look at the 13th Mishnah in chapter four. And the 13th Mishnah in chapter four has a quote from, you guessed it, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. This Mishnah quotes two great sages. One is Rabbi Yehuda. Let's leave aside for a moment what Rabbi Yehuda says, but let's take a look at Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon Omer, Rabbi Shimon said, What is he saying? Rabbi Shimon, and this is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, he of the cave, he of Kabbalah, of mysticism, he of Lagba Omer, Fame, of course, says there are three crowns, the crown of Torah, the crown of priesthood and the crown of kingship. But the crown of a good name surpasses them all. But the first thing that is strange about this Mishnah, of course, is that Rabbi Shimon tells us there are three crowns. when In fact, he speaks about four. He's telling us there's the crown of uh, Torah, this is the crown of priesthood and the crown of kingship. He says those are the three crowns. And then he says, but the crown of a good name, Ola al Gabayim, surpasses all of them. It rises above them all, or it stands literally on top of them all. It stands on their backs. What are we talking about? And what is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai wanting us to know? So, beautiful, simple thought is, of course, let's start with this. Three crowns, the crown of Torah. So we sometimes think that if we have Torah, we have everything. The crown of priesthood. Well, you could say, well, you know what? I come from a Yichastika family. I am from priesthood. Or you can say, you know what? I come from kingship. I'm royalty. I am royalty. That's good enough. No, says Rabbi Shimon. That's not good enough. It's not the only thing. Yes, you can have Torah. And yes, you can have priesthood. And yes, you can have kingship. But if you don't do something about it and establish for yourself a good name, and how do you establish a good name, is by keeping to the Torah and the mitzvahs and so on, and making sure that you interact well with other people, it's only then that you really have understood and grasped the fourth and the most important crown, the crown of a good name. I'll be back with you right after this. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Hi and welcome back. Yes, it's Rabbi Michael Katz with you, Judaism 101.9, and we're talking about Lagba Omer, and we're talking about Rabbi Shimon, and we quoted from Rabbi Shimon, it talks about three ksorim, there are three crowns, the crown of Torah, the crown of Kahuna, and the crown of Malchus, which is the crown of Torah, the crown of priesthood, and the crown of kingship. Now, interestingly enough here, when we think about these three crowns, what we believe Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is actually trying to tell us is the fact that there are three important pillars upon which we actually need to base our good name. 
A good name needs to depend upon our Torah learning. A good name needs to depend upon priesthood. And a good name needs to depend on kingship. Now, what are we talking about here? We're not necessarily talking about, as we indicated in the brief overview before, that we are thinking only about our priesthood or our kingship, or I might be from royalty. No, we're talking about the fact that each and every one of us has and needs to have access to things to do with Torah. We need to learn Torah, to study it. But we need to understand that the study of Torah is not an end in itself. You can't say, well, you know what, I study Torah and therefore I'm perfect and nothing else needs to be done. No, there has to be the application. And the same thing would be true if we thought about priesthood. Now, what is priesthood? So here our sages point out that the concept of the crown of priesthood is not just the fact that some people are kohanim, that some people are priests, but rather the fact that the a holy of holies, which is the holiest space on earth, was entered into by the Kohen Gadol. And when did that happen? That happened once a year. And what was in that space? The concept of Kedusha, the concept of absolute holiness, which was not only the point where um, God, so to speak, and man met where godliness was present on earth, but the a belief and the understanding that it was through that holiest of holy spaces and through the high priest that we were able to access and access and keep up with and be in touch with the highest echelons of God and of godliness. And then to think about kingship, it's not just about recognition of our own royalty, and some of us believe that we're more royal than others. It's not just about that royalty, but rather the royalty is talking about understanding the kingship of God. The fact that God has this kingship, this rulership, this almighty power and strength over each and everything. That nothing would exist were it not for God's kingship, were it not for God's influence and input into everything all the time. That that is the basis and we need to have that understanding. We need to have that grasp. We need to be involved in fully understanding and thinking about our Torah and our access to it and what it does for us and what it does for the world. We need to be fully cognizant of the holiness that God gives us and that we have access to, albeit um, a somewhat greater or more limited, sometimes greater things, when, uh, for instance, when the temple existed and so on. <laughs> And then the ultimate kingship of God and his dominion over everything. But we cannot stop there. We've got to remember that the concept of a good name, when does a person have a name? When is a name relevant? A name is relevant when we're talking about communication. When people call you, when you're called by your name, your name, the name speaks of the fact that a name is relevant in deference to or in relationship to others. You don't need a name if there was only one of you. You need a name when we're talking about a number of different people. Your interaction with other people is what is of paramount importance. So we've got to use our Torah and our Kedusha, our holiness, and our uh, kingship of God. We need to utilize all of that to establish a proper rapport and a proper relationship with our fellow men. Our Avas Yisrael, our love for our fellow men, our respect for each other, this all needs to be based upon those other three pillars. And this is what we're talking about when we think about 
Rabbi Akiva, and when we think about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and when we think about this beautiful, beautiful Mishnah. Be back with you in a moment to wrap up. Get back to basics with Judaism 101 with Rabbi Michael Katz. Yes, so let's make sure that this Lagba Omer, this coming 33rd day of the Omer on Thursday night and Friday, we celebrate correctly. We celebrate remembering the deep and profound messages of Lagba Omer, the idea of love of your fellow man, the idea of respect for each other, the idea of establishing that good name that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai talks about in that Mishnah. And hopefully, as we do that, we will be able to move our world into a much better place, a place of kindness, a place of goodness, a place of love and a place of care. And hopefully as we do that, we will have fully got the message of what Lagba Omer is actually all about. I want to wish you a great Chag. I want to wish you a great rest of the week, a great Shabbat up ahead. And I look forward to being back with you same time, same place next week on Judaism 101.9.